Hello, Tasty Pines family. Jack again. Riley's off watching the Rangers lose to the Hurricanes. Sad, but true. This week, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Williams. Here's a little about him. Dr. Williams is a board-certified internal medicine physician. He earned his Bachelor's of Science at Yale in Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. He then turned to the streets of New Haven as a paramedic, where he learned the inside track to working with all members of the surrounding hospitals. He went to Tulane University for medical school. It was there that Dr. Williams met the mentors that guided him towards education, and he started making instructional videos in 2010. After completing his internal medicine residency at Tulane, he took on the position of hospitalist at Baton Rouge General, where he served as the clerkship director for Tulane students in the LEAD curriculum and core faculty for the Baton Rouge General Internal Medicine Residency Program. Always passionate about teaching, Dr. Williams was ready to take his videos to the next level and formally co-founded Online Meded in 2014. After balancing both hospital work and creating content for Online Meded, Dr. Williams decided to fully dedicate himself to educating others in 2019 by focusing only on his work at Online Meded. Serving as the lead educator, he and his team of medical experts review innovative research and data to support the content shared with students in medical institutions. Dr. Williams has presented and published most recently on impactful topics such as your doctor's thoughts on your diabetes medications, how doctors think, step one, myths, legends, and facts, and revolutionizing medical education. When he's not at work, Dr. Williams is convincing the team to put his beloved cat on everything online meded. This was such a good conversation. He's a lot of fun. He's super interesting, and he's very passionate about what he does. Riley and I had a great conversation. We think that this is a great episode for anybody interested in continuing education or interested in changing how curriculums work and how people learn. Enjoy this one, and uh, yeah. We were also talking about Riley. We were talking about what pint we would want to do um, if we were going to like introduce it in our intro and talk uh, okay, about so, it. Okay, so first off, like I'm actually drinking coffee, so we could just do a pint of caffeine. Like everyone's got to have something. Um, there you go. But my my girlfriend's dad bought me a beer advent calendar for Christmas. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's like it's all imported beers from Germany and it's 24 different beers for 24 different days leading up to Christmas. And so I've, I'm only on like drink four at this point. I've been kind of slacking. Um, but I was thinking about grabbing one of those and bringing it up and I was like, oh, 11 AM for um, a 16 ounce lager is a little bit tough. To well, start. if you don't tell the audience it's 11 AM, they don't know that. That's a <laughs> great point. I mean, uh, 3 p.m. Uh, <laughs> At least 5 p.m. Also, like the one one a day thing, like we don't really have to follow. Yeah, that. I well, I told them my initial challenge was to complete the entire calendar in 24 hours. So you just do like one every hour. Like uh, Jack Bauer from the TV show 24, except mine is just drinking beer. <laughs> except yours. <laughs> is a problem yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm not solving a problem i'm creating one <laughs> let's get into it and see if anything sparks your interest because i don't really there we it. go <laughs> yeah so we uh we just want to get like a little bit of a, a background origin story on you um 
where you grew up, interest as a kid, um, interest maybe through high school and then into undergrad too. I'm going to take that and answer it because the answer is the same thing doesn't matter if you keep going into medical school um the background of medicine right so i didn't i wasn't able to do anything else and after watching one of my talks my mother reminded me it wasn't two it was one year old she had me trained by the age one to answer three questions where are you going to go to school what are you going to be what car are you going to drive and the answer was <laughs> yale dr mercedes eventually i got three for three well, it turns out, though, that the car doesn't bring happiness. Med school wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And while getting into Yale was an accomplishment, I, um, it didn't really help. I had to take the MCAT twice and, uh, again, a chemistry twice. Finally got in, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and in between um, college and medical school, I was a paramedic. So um, it was riding around the streets of New Haven. It's um, had a couple of things, actually, like, you know, I got used to being in like high intensity scenario, right? So like things didn't bother me anymore. But more importantly, I was trained um, by nurses. So I had to have a natural deference to the nurses, which most medical students and doctors do not have, right? They shut all over the nurses. So that really helped me out. But having that experience in between prepared me for clinicals in, in a way that I didn't really appreciate until much later. As far as interest, there's always becoming a doctor. Yeah. Um... All right, quickly going off that then, and I, I guess this is kind of just jumping into the thick of things. Do you think that like that experience as a paramedic was something you'd recommend? Because I know there are people who go straight through into um, schooling like right after undergraduate. They, they don't take that time to get that clinical exposure or I guess just medical exposure in general. Like a lot of it going and not doing the actual work itself. Um, is that something that you would definitely recommend towards people that are pursuing this kind of path? No, um, I wouldn't give the recommendation to people who are thinking about um, going to medical school. I would give that advice to um, admissions committees. But um, I, we did a study at Tulane, um, me and my mentor, um, not really a study, but like analysis. We looked at who were the who were the people who got accepted six years ago who are the high performers in residency. There's a lot of stuff that can happen in between, but it's like the people who ended up being not the high scorers, but the high performers were the people who had some service industry um, or going to serve medical mission, something, doing something in between for two years that get, that brings a maturity with it. And so it was like, if you want high performing medical providers, they should, you should probably accept students who have had some sort of experience, but it's not a requirement, right? Because people can still perform without having that. So I would not recommend it to people. I'd recommend it if you try to get in, can't get in <laughs> as you try, as you try again. <laughs> yeah. So it's good to put on the CV too, right? Like, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested. Right? I was really interested, in, and I enjoyed the experience. But not everyone's going to want to do something like that, and I don't think that people should have to do that. When you were much, much younger, and your answer to the question became doctor, did you have somebody else in your family that was involved in medicine already? Nope. <laughs> right. So it took me three times to get in. Right. Um, and then when I got there, I was like, uh oh, everyone else who got like. Because I didn't get in the two years beforehand, that meant that someone else got my spot. And so when I got there, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, this is going to be full of fucking people who are brilliant and amazing. Oh, it's not. How'd you get my spot? How'd you get my spot? I forget what the actual question was. Can you ask it again? I was building up to something, but I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, yeah, I was just wondering, like, if you didn't have a role model in your family, like, oh, that's right. People, that's what it is. Right. Yeah, so like I myself, like Riley. Right. So I had, a, 
I had a vision of what being a doctor was. It wasn't based on anything because I didn't have anyone in my family who was, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I had, when I got to medical school, the medical students did not match my vision of what being a doctor was. I found out though in medical school that um, the, my mentors, the people who thought the way of my, now my vision is not the right one, right? It was just mine, right? So like there's different doctors, different, have different personalities. For example, you do not want me in an operating room, right? They call me Hurricane Williams in here, the company. So I like make a mess of everything while creating magic, right? And so um, I got into medical school. I did not find what I wanted. Uh, or what I expected to find, um, but I decided I was going to do well anyway. So like I bunk bunkered down, I studied a lot, and I did well, both in licensing exams and on class rank. And I was told by faculty and my friends, don't waste your scores. I, now back then, the scores that I got are like average now, but the, um, the, the point was like I could pick my residency. And what they were saying is pick a subspecialty that pays a lot, you don't have to work very much. <laughs> They're optimizing for that. And I'm like, but like, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm optimizing for impact, right? And so my mentors in, inter in medical school happened to be in Tulane Internal Medicine, right? So I didn't waste my scores. I chose Internal Medicine <laughs> at Tulane, right? Like I, I got my first pick. But, uh, and when I got into residency, I found what I thought was going to be what a doctor is, right? Like other people who thought like me say yes and others say no. We took care of the people that the rest of the country forgot. Post-Katrina in New Orleans wasn't a very uh, comfortable place to be in. Right? But like everyone was there to really to do good, right? to take care of the patients that other people wouldn't, who are difficult to take care of because they're so complicated. And so like when I got into residency, I finally found like, aha, this, this is my calling. And then and, and when I graduated, I'm going to anticipate the next question. <laughs> when I eventually graduated re residency, I assumed I was always going to stay at Tulane. But that year, they didn't have any openings. So <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. Instead, my mentor, who was the clerkship director then for the main campus, was trying to be recruited by the satellite campus in Baton Rouge. So I went to Baton Rouge, became the clerkship director right out of residency, and then uh, practiced for a couple of years before resigning my post and coming to online medical full time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You said, so what point in your training did Hurricane Katrina happen? Uh, before. Oh, that's before. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what was, were you around during one of the next big hurricanes that was down there? Yeah. Um, uh, the code gray. So I would serve in the hurricanes. Like I would, <laughs> okay. Um, Man. Let's not talk too much about New Orleans because it's pretty intense and like pe most people like can't handle it. So, yeah. I am. Um, I was in the relief team. So, I was in my house sleeping in the tub. <laughs> Hurricane coming through. I had to drink all the beer bottles because the power was going to go out and then we'd all go bad. Two days into it, I had to like, I had to walk to my car, which was like a mile and a half away on like uh, raised land. So I, like, so I could then drive in. I'm not going to tell the whole story. <laughs> well, not in camera. But and then I, I had to then move into the hospital for a week. Oh and like, gosh. I brought with me clothes and bottled water. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a big deal. Like once the hurricane goes through, it's like you're in the, you're in the hospital. Like I'm sitting in the call room, right? I'm on like the third floor and it's like locked down building, right? So it's like just living in the hospital. But yes, I did it a couple of times. But that's like when your job gets super busy. That's when everybody comes in, no? <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was relieving that, that, that story. So there's not a lot of us either, right? Most people evacuate. Like mm -hmm. you can't, you're not allowed to, like, to be the relief team if you're not on the relief team. 
like you're told to get out. So the code gray team is, has to like do everything with less. Yeah, but like so I'm saying whatever, right? Paramedic, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like everyone's working together. It's not like and also it's not like during the hurricane, they don't really care about how detailed the note is. <laughs> right. <laughs> they care about how detailed the order is, right? So yeah. they know what to know what to do. Right. So like there's not like um it, it, it lacks significantly. Like the the bureaucratic bullshit. Yeah. Oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That's that's the right use of the word. No, that's sorry um, for sorry for sorry. <laughs> <yeah>. no. <laughs> Have you considered doing any other relief? Um like do you think you would ever do disaster relief? No. no. <laughs> I served my time. Yeah. <laughs> Riley and I were talking about it. I guess there, there's only a few specialties where they actually would want you um, in that kind of scenario. And I guess, yeah, internal medicine is definitely one of them. That's right. Got to do it all. Yeah, definitely. Did you grow up down in uh, Louisiana? No. I went, I'm um, born and raised in Connecticut, Hamden, then Cheshire. And I went to Yale. And I was a paramedic in New Haven. And oh, I'm moving to Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> Super South. So you're from, did you go to high school in Hamden? Hamden Hall. No way. Uh-huh. Yeah. My, uh, my high school in West Hartford, Kingswood, uh, we used to play Hamden Hall in football. <laughs> cool. I didn't yeah. know that, but yeah. Yeah. And oh. my, uh, yeah, my sister actually lives down there too now. It's so nice down there. Did want to ask about how like that might've affected your path into medicine at all. Like, is well, there... Yeah, no, it didn't. I mean, I, 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 why did I go to Tulane? Because they let me in, but also I went down to save the city, right? The city fought back. And so I, I, moving to Baton Rouge wasn't a huge loss, right? Like um, it was a dangerous place to live. It's not that way anymore. It wasn't that way beforehand, right? But like in the chaos and like, and the absence of like government (laughs) or municipal services, like if if a restaurant got held up at gunpoint, it took 45 minutes for the police to get there. So I would use to practice taking off my jewelry and stuffing it in one of the cushion of the restaurant I was in. Yeah. Right. So like, it was like, right. But that's like, oh, it's routine. And that's the thing I'll tell you. <laughs> right. So no, it did not influence my path to medicine. It, it, I was still serving the people who needed me. Right. And like, and, and it was actually more fun. I was, I was saying that like, you know, when you're in the hospital for the hurricane relief team, the bureaucracy starts to go down a little bit. Right. Like no one's coming by and making sure that you filled out your note to a level three billing standards. <laughs> right? Like it's like keep people alive. <laughs> right. So like that, it, 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 that was actually enjoyable. Like it was difficult, but it was fun. Um, and but it, it didn't uh, hurt my exit to Baton Rouge for sure. Do you think that some of the, um, the bureaucracy and involvement with billing and notes has moved you more towards edu- education, too? Was that? Uh, a part yep. or influence, yeah. <laughs> That's not very much so. So um, I was uh, effectively the de facto um, associate program director for the Baton Rouge um, Internal Medicine Residency. I grew up from like uh, 24 to 36 residents and went to the four plus one system. And um, while at the same time doing the, the internal medicine clerkship, right, I was the second highest earner because I documented it correctly and billed well. And also I said yes, and other people would say no, right? So. Uh, one of the reasons why I left was because I had an opportunity. I had I was given the option to become like the youngest program director um, in internal medicine at a, at a like a, a DO becoming an, a, an MD ACGME accredited residency. They wanted me. They're going to write to the ACGME. 
and say like, I know he's too young, but like, don't penalize us for it. And like, that was an opportunity. I didn't take it because I asked, do I want to go deep? Do I want to in impact very few people a lot, right? Or do I want to go broad? And what I decided was to go broad. Now, I didn't turn that down to go to online media, but one of the things that finally pushed me out was routine miracles. It's one of the speech I give, right? Now, I wasn't doing miracles anymore. It was just routine, right? So see, for me to see 21 patients meant I looked at the computer to see the results of 21 people's stuff, right? I, then I made 21 disposition decisions. I wrote 21 notes and I dropped 21 charges, right? I spent two to three times more time at a computer than I did at the bedside. And I had only teaching services. Right. So like, absolutely the way things are sucks. It's like, it's like, it's like, it really like it's monotonous and it's meaningless because I did it so well yesterday, six discharges, six admits. I'm going to do it so well today, six discharges, six admits. I get to do it again tomorrow, six discharges, six admits. Right. Like I was doing good right? as a hospitalist. I get to see people, whether I, I like, first I like solving the puzzle. Like, am I right? Like, did I make the diagnosis correctly? And then I get to see if I'm right or wrong and watch people improve, right? That should be very rewarding, but they come routine, right? Life-changing for the patient, routine for me. So mm. I am not immune to routine miracles. And I often caution people, pay attention to that because everyone's going to feel that way, right? Like the cardiologist who threads the balloon <laughs> across the legion and saves someone's life has to be on call this weekend. <laughs> they got to go to yeah. work can't hang out with me, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But like, <laughs> it saves a life every day, right? So that's it, like um, the, the, the monotony, the, the amount of bureaucratic backend paperwork that I tried to shield the residents from as much as I can, right? I would do it so they didn't have to, right? Mm. Like it definitely is a burden on patient care because the thing you get dinged on is not filling out your chart. <laughs> you don't get dinged on having the wrong diagnosis, right? You, you get dinged on the, the length of stay. Not how good you did. That seems so backwards. Yeah. Um, so it seems like we kind of got a decent idea of like why you wanted to transition over into the, more of an educational role. But I would love to hear a little bit about like how you actually were able to start that transition. Like where did the idea come from and how do you take those first steps to get the ball rolling? Because you go onto the website now, it's a full-blown business. It's a incredible operation there's so many videos it, it's so educational in so many different realms and to see where that is based off of like where a small idea might have started it... let's do two different things so let's do origin story first right um if my mother gave me medicine my father gave me teaching he has always been a teacher he teaches hotel and restaurant management and has always had some unique style which i've never really witnessed but i know that he's like something special because like he's my dad and um, there was no official download of how to teach, right? But there must have been some transfer at some point because I've been doing it all, all my life. Um, I like taking complex things, to call myself a master builder, right? And I put them back into in a way that makes sense for people, right? I did it. And when I was in college, I took a bartending class, was a bartender, I taught my own bartending class. As a paramedic, I helped with the EMTs. In medical school, I did well. So I helped, you know, I taught my peers. And then when I, after step one, I started, I started tutoring. And so, um, I lost the train of thought again, damn. Origin um, story. Origin story. Teacher. Thank you. Teacher. There we go. Thanks. Right. So I've been doing it my whole career, life, my whole life I've been teaching. The flip switched, switch flipped when I was in third year, OBGYN clerkship. Um, then I'm old, right? So then um, we talked, was a lecture about contraception. Uh, then there was only Yaz and condoms, right? And so I knew yeah, that's what I'm going to describe. Yes, that's what's on TV. 
And the, the thing that was so striking was that he was an amazing lecturer, right? He used the whiteboard, he used colors, he had cadence and tempo. And the problem was he got into like this insane amount of detail about the amounts of progestin and estrogen and hours and minutes you can miss. And, but when the answer on the test was OCPs, hmm. right? It was perfect for a fifth year OBGYN resident intent on going into reproductive endocrinology fellowship. Hmm. Zero of the 20 of us went into OBGYN. <laughs> so I was like, look, like I, there has to be a better way. I didn't know if I was going to be it, right? But like, I, I'm going to try. So at my mentors in internal medicine, they also were teachers. The reason why I use a whiteboard is because I got taught to use a whiteboard. <laughs> like I didn't come up with that myself, right? That's like how it's done. And the idea is on the whiteboard, you can only put up so much. You can't have 150 PowerPoint slide, right? What goes on the board stays on the board. And that's the stuff you should take away with you as the learner, right? So that, that's intentional. So I got a whiteboard and a camera from um, the guy I knew at the Superdome AV equipment and uh, just started, right? And um, I went bad, bad. But a lot of the stuff that you do in person, like move around the room and make a lot of movement, looks terrible on camera. <laughs> and I was not a good educator yet, so I was very boring. Um, my then girlfriend um, was also a fourth year medical student. Before we decided to do a fixed camera, we did Pan and Zoom, which students now refer to as Queasy Cam, Jason Bourne. Right, so <laughs> like, you know, zoom in and out. So I, uh, I was so bad that um, she fell asleep. And I, I had for like 10 minutes, I was like over here and the, ca the camera zoomed in over there. And I didn't know because I didn't turn around to look at the camera, right? I was so boring. She fell asleep and I'm so bad at, at, at like as a presenter, I didn't even notice until the end of the lecture, <laughs> right? There's a fire at Google two years later. No one's going to see those videos. They, they don't exist, but they were better than what was out there because people just started showing up, right? I just put them up and people came. And so as I um, went into residency, my girlfriend turned into my father, he would come down on my off weeks right? and uh, we would do like 80 hours of filming um, wow. at, at, a, at a clip. And so um, the, it was just a project on the side, right? I was like making videos. Really, it was for me to um, practice teaching, right? And then it was like, well, you know, might as well flush it out. Okay, clinical. And I started a clinical because that, there was a giant void there, right? And what I do, and when you eventually find this, you'll see, um, what I did was say, you know, I would choose a word from pathology that would resonate because you'd recognize it, but it didn't really matter because I was just getting your attention because what I wanted to teach you was the illness script, right? The patient presentation, how you diagnose yeah. it, and then how you treat it. Right? And so um, the co-founder decided to make it a company, joined with me in 2013, and we launched in 2014. And um, we were primarily a clinical program, right? We had stuff for um, M3s. And then uh, the next question that you asked was like, how did it grow? And that's a difficult story. Like, um, as I kept progressing, right? As an intern, I taught students. As a resident, I taught intern and students. As attending, I taught residents, interns, and students. And actually, as an attending, I also taught other attendings how to be better faculty. So my repertoire grew, right? And so... The natural tendency was to start a clinical and move forward, right? So um, we have the the pace is our paradigm, right? So prime, acquire, challenge, enforce, read the notes, watch the video, do the questions, and then some reinforcement activity. That's a repeatable framework for each lesson. Each lesson is designed to teach things that are like together, right? So you're not learning distinct individual diseases. You're learning third trimester bleeding, right? So the things in there <laughs> are going to be relevant to a woman who's pregnant in the third trimester and is bleeding. It's a differential naturally comes to. Um, the 
it might be helpful to do the catalog since you don't know us. Um, I'm going to do it briefly. You can decide if you want to keep it in. So um, we did clinical first, and that was basically step two and clerkships, shelf uh, preparation. Um, then I um, created the intern boot camp, which was based on um, my experience with my interns. It turns out last year's intern class is the same problems as this intern class and will be the same problems as last year's intern class. Wouldn't it be great if we just solved those problems ahead of time, gave them the answer, right? And let, let, let them start from here instead of like bumbling around for six months to finally figure something out, right? Like I, I, was, on, I was on service at seven on, seven off, right? So it's one month, one resident, two interns, right? So like I would get some interns at the end of first year, and they were not ready to be interns. Right? So I created the intern bootcamp. It's like all the, all the solution to all those problems. But one of my proud moments of the of bacon stuff, Phil Masters of ACP called me, right? He was like, uh, I'm, like I'm interested in your, uh, in, your intern uh, preparation curriculum. And I was like, okay, and I, I got ready to give him my spiel. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I looked at it already. <laughs> we, we, we want to use it. I was like, okay. And it's like, and like they basically gave a couple of the, the lessons to uh, for free to anyone who's membership of ACP. We've got recommended by ACP stamped on it. Um, we then also created that that was like um, soft skills, right? All of the non-medicine stuff that's ready for intern year. Then we created Case X, which is real patients with that that represent real problems that real residents had. Like they're not exactly one-to-one, but they are real people, right? And then the, the cases that are basically an M&M, it's a review of what happened. But you get to stop right, and say, what do you think should happen? What do you think went wrong? And then you can't alter the direction of the case. You find out what actually happened. right? Like, so these aren't like esoteric, theoretical, made-up cases. These are real people that have real problems that you get to solve. So it's like that's focusing on clinical reasoning. And like, and you do it in a safe space, right? Because it's not your patient. You don't have charts thrown down your throat. You got time between match day and orientation. Intern boot camp case X, you walk in like a six-month intern instead of a fourth-year medical student. Um, during the response to COVID, we did a crash course in medicine. Um, it was a free set, free video series based on my practice patterns. Um, I was uh, called by some of my friends um, from med school, I, like uh, super specialized surgeons, like urologists, interventional radiologists. Yeah, they're like, can you tutor me? I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> they're, being, they're being redeployed, right, they, to a medicine oh. floor. Like they hadn't seen a medicine ward in 15 years. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. Um, one of my favorite stories is um, a med psych guy who graduated residency with me who was a psychiatry program director then. It's like, Dustin, my psychiatry residents are being redeployed to the medicine floor. I'm like, okay, Dustin, they're psychiatrists. <laughs> not, like nothing against the field, right? But like if you go into psychiatry, you did not sign up to go see medical patients with COVID, right? Like that. So we created this uh, video series that basically gave people enough information about what they could do and what, what they should do based on what diagnosis. So they showed up confident enough not to freeze. Um, and then um, the big thing, one of the main reasons why I left medicine, those things we talked about, but also it was because I needed to focus on the full time. Right after uh, the rocket ship career as an academic hospitalist, I um, decided to go back to medical school. And so I was trying to do the preclinical sciences, which are called basic sciences on our site, but we're changing. It. I thought it was going to take seven months. It took me two years the first time, right? Going to medical school, it took me four and a half years doing it and uh, finally <laughs> figuring it out. Right. But in doing that, I have, a, I had a perspective, right? Like I went back, I looked at my notes. I clearly didn't know what I, what, I don't remember. And I can tell by the way I wrote it, I didn't understand it. Right. So like I, I went back and created a curriculum that using the materials that everyone has access to, right, 
took the thing apart, master built it, but put it back together in a way that makes sense. And in a frame in a series of repeatable frameworks, prime acquire challenge, of course, right? That and laid them out into a longitudinal integrated curriculum that builds on itself, right? Knows where you've been and where you're going. So it actually accelerates the time to mastery. That's one of my new phrases is go faster, farther. Was, ah, wow, I can't believe I bombed it. It's like I've been saying that forever. Faster, <laughs> farther with less effort and time for something else. Wow. Yeah. So like now we have a end-to-end four-year fully longitudinal integrated curriculum that, thank you, Sahar, <laughs> called the faster with less effort. <laughs> right. So now we have this curriculum that's end-to-end, right? You, you just bump into, you start with us at the beginning. We're there the entire way. It, it calls on itself and it tells you when things are appropriate to learn stuff. And then it gets you ready for practical with the intern bootcamp in KSEX. So that was a long-winded version. I usually wouldn't do that if you knew the website, but like we've got core, which is the knowledge stuff, which is preclinical science, it's clinical sciences. We have intern bootcamp in KSEX, as long with the intern guide, which is a book, which is a transition to residency. And um, we've started, and we also did the nutrition curriculum, which is food as medicine, which is sort of relevant for anybody anywhere. And then um, we are starting new products um, like the radiology reading room and physical diagnosis. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. I think that's like, that's one of the most unique things I saw when I, I was, I used the website for some of the step one material too, and just like gen, that general core sciences. And one of the things I've at least personally seen that's so much different than every other resource is that there's literally something for every year of learning like you it's not just targeted to one set of students or one demographic it's like there's something for everyone to learn there no matter what stage you are in medicine and i think that is part of what makes it so efficient and applicable to every part of it especially if you get in it right so for me if med school was climbing a mountain i went up the mountain down the mountain back around the mountain, jumped into the frozen lake, swam through the access tunnel, into a cave with no exit, dug myself out of the mountain, only to end up just in front of the mountain. Imagine if you took all that effort and applied it to a smooth, well-paved, flat, well-lit road. That's what farther, faster, with less effort means. <laughs> and so, the, and the point of that though, right? Like, um, I did it. I did it twice, right? And uh, what happens i feel like is that you get into medical school you get told people can filter you on your step scores and your class rank and so you hear huh i'm gonna probably focus on that right and then the medical school doesn't cooperate or they give you something else and so and you know what i'm talking about right you end up using this other thing right this this what i call a shadow curriculum other people call it a parallel curriculum you end up doing med school curriculum and this other thing the problem with this other thing is that it's good enough. I know that because I did it, <laughs> right? I was very successful, but it had a different name back when, back in my day, right? But like, it's the same thing. The problem with it is that it's not good, first of all, and they're made of conflicting, competing frameworks, right? If once you approach something this way, approach it this way, what you end up is this, right? So you spend a lot of effort and a lot of time making these fit together, right? And all you get is memorization. What didn't exist until today is this thing, the new thing, the new fit, play, paved road that we've built at Online Meta, which does build on itself. You don't memorize. It doesn't make any sense. I've never been good at memorization anyway. Learning medicine is not like drinking from a fire hose of knowledge. It is if you do it wrong, because I did it the wrong the first time through. I know that. Health and disease is incredibly modular. You just need to see the modularity. 
And I'll give you a quick example of it. Um, acute inflammation. You'll usually learn this in wound healing, right? Neutrophils arrive first, gobble up the baddies, call for help, die, die in place. Macrophages come next to clear the way. And after clear, they signal fibroblasts, fibroblasts come out and make scar tissue. Well, it turns out acute inflammation is the same thing everywhere. Acute inflammation in the heart is myocytes die. They're seen as pathogens. Neutrophils arrive first, gobble up the baddies, die in place, calling for help. Macrophages arrive next to clear the mess. Fibroblasts come in, lay down scar. It's the same thing in the liver. Kid hepatitis. Hepatocytes die. Neutrophils come in. Macrophages, fibroblasts. No one until said neutrophils, macrophages, fibroblasts. <laughs> it's the same thing everywhere. <laughs> the difference is in the liver, hepatocytes are potentially regenerative. So it takes decades of cirrhosis, uh, decades of hepatitis to get cirrhosis. The uh, heart, they're G0. They don't replicate. So when they're dead, they're just replaced by pure scar. And with wound healing, you don't want scar. So put the skin edges close together. <laughs> right. So like the efficiency you get out of acute inflammation, right? Now let's talk about what's important. Right? Instead, what people do is they write a textbook and one person names that those cells and that thing that way. And then someone else names th this way. Right. And they don't tell you that it's same. It looks mm -hmm. like there's an infinite amount of information you have to learn, but there really isn't. Right? Like by, by doing the deconstructing and putting it back together, it can make a curriculum that streamlines your, your learning and actually really does accelerate your time to mastery. The thing is, the other thing that's special, yes, we have an end of the curriculum. The other thing that's special is me, right? Not because of, I'm special, but because what I do is become the master of a subject for a brief time, right? So I, I have to become the, the embryologist, anatomist, histologist, physiologist, pathologist, radiologist, and subspecialist for like a brief minute, right? To get to what I, to understand it, to put, to build it again. So I don't leave gaps, right? Mm -hmm. There's not, there's not purposeful, no, sorry, I'm going to say this. There's, there's not gaps. There's not redundancy. There's repetition if it's intentional, right? We don't say the same thing twice accidentally. Right? And then most importantly is that synonym thing, right? Like we make, we say this thing and this thing are the same, <laughs> right? So, but we're going to use only this one now, right? So we, we, we make it the, the things that never, no one has time to look up, we've looked up. And it's not just me, by the way, that's the whole team behind me. I've got like two editors that, that, that make me sound intelligent, right? And like, I, I haven't done a video and all like, now it's like the 1200 of them. I mean, there's only 650 of them now, but like, I have never successfully filmed a video in one take. Really? It's gotten better <laughs> at editing out my mistakes. <laughs> so like, it's not like I'm so amazing, but what we've done is all the hard work. We've done the heavy lifting that you didn't have time to do. Right, because you have your next thing coming at you. If you didn't understand it, forget it, whatever. I'll memorize it, I'll move on. Right? And that's okay until it isn't, right? Because it is good enough. But the thing, oh, I didn't say, I didn't say this, right? So um, medical school was hard, mountain thing, right? Um, and I actually did really well, right? So uh, I was, um, I say that I was drowning. I didn't know I was drowning until 10 years later after a year of therapy, but I was back in medical school, right? So and let me tell you what drowning looks like. I was two standard deviations above the mean step one, two standard deviations above the mean step two. I was AOA, top 25th percentile, published a bunch of papers, got into my residency of choosing. Now that sounds an awful lot like success, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, I also gained 30 pounds, developed hypertension, got geared so bad I got scoped twice in medical school, gave up all of my hobbies and most of my friends. It was good enough because I got my residency of choosing, right? But I think I could have, if I had, 
time for something else. I might've done a little bit of self-care along the way. Yeah. But, <laughs> so, I mean, it, like that, so my mission now is really to get people off the shadow curriculum and onto this new one, which is better for everybody. And the, one of the things we're doing this year is convincing schools, right? Because, you know, PACE, Prime Acquired Turn Forth, like I used to have to convince people that asynchronous learning is better. Students can study at their own pace, right? Like I had to convince people of that, right? Not anymore. COVID was the accelerant, right? It's going to be like everyone had to do something. No one was ready and they weren't sure what they should do or who did it right. Well, mm. we've hired an institutional success team. I call them the nine deans to get schools on board with using our new curriculum to show them how to do it right. Because we do know and we have the product to do it. So it's to get people off the shadow curriculum, get, get medical schools aligned with ours. We'll show you how to do it. All of a sudden, you don't have to have 15 subscriptions to 19 different services in order to barely get through your learning. Yeah. Like you go to medical school and the school gives you online meta <laughs> and then their faculty build off it. Imagine that. <laughs> I can think of so many times in class, Riley, where there's a disconnect amongst our team members because we do team-based learning um, just because we're drawing from different sources of information we're saying the same thing but we're just using different language or phrases because we're using these different resources right. that were ones that the school did not give us i like <laughs> it's funny you say that because Every every exam period, we do like 10-week blocks and then one cumulative exam. So the four weeks leading up to the exam is obviously everyone going insane and sitting in the library for 12 hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so me and like one of my better friends at UConn, we would always get in such heated arguments over like super tiny stuff because we we're like, oh, we have to perfect this if they ask it this way. And it almost always ends with us just saying, we're saying the exact same thing. We're on the same page. And it took probably 20 minutes for us to figure out that we're trying to explain the same thing just differently. Imagine if you could spend all that energy just getting to the next thing. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, hey, do you have a debate over how to pronounce the name spelled W-E-B-E-R? Like Weber versus Weber? Uh-huh. There, I have, yeah, I've heard people say Weber, Weber, think, Weber. I think well, I no. just yeah. Well, that's you I, did it though. Yeah, yeah, I come to the point where I don't even second guess it at this point. If I like kind of understand what they're getting at, I just let it go. There's like oh Weber Weber whatever they're trying to say. If it's well, in context, and I can make it happen in my brain. I remember several heated arguments whether it was Weber or Weber. He's you know, so I you know I was like you know what I remember that I'm gonna look it up. He's German, and even though he trained and practiced in England, kept the continental V. Yeah. It's Weber. It's not Weber or Weber. Right. And I'm like, it's an eponym. Like I remember spending all so much energy on whether it was Weber or Weber. And I never looked it up then because I didn't have time to do it. It took me four and a half years to do the basic sciences when I had took, I only had two years to do it the first time through. Right. So like, that's what I'm talking about. Right. Well, I've gone and answered the stupid question that no one should have asked. It's an eponym to begin with. Who cares how you say the guy's name? But like, but if you just know how to say it, then you never have the argument. <laughs> yeah, I think just one of the biggest things I've realized trying to learn all this curriculum too is the bulk of the time that we spend learning is trying to find the information. 
and then it's actually learning the information. So like having this website and this program where it's all centrally located and it's given to you is kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast, like where we still see some gaps. It's just like it's impossible for you to grab information from 30 different resources and then start to memorize it. If it's just in one place and everything is there, it's going to streamline everything and make it so much more efficient. And, and I think that's to, what this is doing. And you won't have to memorize. Yeah. You'll right. actually understand. Yeah. I could, cause I could just say no acute inflammation and you know exactly what I mean. Right. <laughs> like I do that a lot. Like, like the, the, the really is module, the repeatable elements. I remember um, people talking about ha- memorizing all of the different intracellular pathways. It's like, it's GI, GS, GQ. And GI and GS, they go to the same one, right? And I was like, I remember there being like all, so many of them, there's more receptors in the intracellular receptor than that, right? But like, when it comes down to GTPCRs, it's like, it, there's just three of them. <laughs> and it's the same thing everywhere. They use the same intracellular molecule. They did all the same thing. It's like signal AMP goes up, it opens, whether it's a bronchial or arterial or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> and so like knowing that, I can predict things, right? Like I, lo- I got taught the Freeman model stages of labor. They think all of our competitors in air quotes still teach, right? It was 1953 and uh, I memorized them. They've been updated since then. Cool. Right. And so like I was doing reproduction last in, in basic sciences and like all the stuff I had learned, I was like, it, it can't be right. It's not right. There's a constant change and constant rate of change. It like starts off and then it revs up towards the, towards the very end. It ramps like that's the thing it does in nature. Right. Not like flat S curve at the end. Right. And I was like, okay, I, I did OBGYN as the first clinical refresh. And the OBGYN reviewer was like, yeah, we use Yang now. What? Who is Zhang? Zhang, right? He's like in 2010. His group was like, you know, maybe um, so much check once a century. If we're right, nope, <laughs> if we're not right, the Freeman model is bogus. Women were being cut open unnecessarily because we were following this S curve thing that was found at some point. The the curves do agree though, in like the last four hours of labor, <laughs> right? So. Uh, I, it's insane, but like I was able to predict that, like the, the Zhang model without knowing about it. And then he had like that, that group had proved it, right? So now my new thing is if you understand health and disease from the perspective of the cells and epithelia of the organs rather than the organs themselves, learning clinical becomes not just easy, but intuitive. And so that, that's kind of what we've done with the, the preclinical sciences curriculum. We, they've got like a rev up, right? You learn molecules first. And then you like cells in themselves and how like cells interact with each other, immunology, microbiology, and then you hit organ systems. And it's just repeating the, the units that you learned in the foundations over and over and over again. And it turns out that like, it's not step one, finally, now I can start. It's like preclinical sciences, clinical sciences. Boop. And like it, it's, it's, like, it does really make things a lot easier. Now you still have to memorize stuff, right? You get the MRI or the CT, like, you know, which ones are better for, but like, you know, like the amount you have to memorize goes way down, which is the problem because a lot of people say that they take you to mastery, but what they mean is they'll help you memorize. Memorize yeah. and regurgitate is a symptom of what medical education has become. It's something we got to get rid of. And something you can, if people hop over to this new curriculum. This is um, so interesting. <laughs> 
have you have you found schools already that are mm-hmm. yeah they're using your stuff yeah what happens the best is when you, they commit like they fully integrate they're actually like in JAMA two years ago maybe three now there was a paper was like why are we all doing this by ourselves why don't we just have one standardized curriculum that we all build on top of and I was like I I yeah I, I, I've been saying it for ten years hello nice to meet you. So, um, but full integration is really where it, where it needs to be. Um, sometimes we would just, they would buy it and throw it over the wall. That doesn't work. So then we just become part of the shadow curriculum, right? Like that, that, like that, that, that's not useful. When schools have fully integrated, that's the best. Our uh, early adopter is Nancy Hayes at uh, Florida State University. Um, she purchased our basic sciences curriculum before it was done. No pressure on me. <laughs> <laughs> And um, she went through and basically did all the content herself, identified where there were where areas of oversimplification where I clearly like, you know, hand waved, right? But I don't tell you I hand waved, right? And then she found some places where she thought were errors. Now, I didn't know that she taught the neuroscience curriculum, but I thought she was coming to me on behalf of the person who did. <laughs> and she was like, dude, what's this nothing migrates, right? So for uh, in embryology, I say nothing migrates, cells proliferate cells get pushed apart from each other because cells that are of the same organ proliferate, but hepatocyte cells become the liver and they push the other organs away, right? And that works for literally every organ system, except CNS, because in neuroscience, everything migrates, right? And so like, but I, like I used it because I know that the students would be familiar neuroscience is towards the end, right? So like, it's just before reproduction. And so she was like, what is this? I can't, like, I can't, this is, this is garbage. And I was like, hmm. What if you walked into class and said, you know, I know what Dr. D-Dubs told you, and I know nothing migrates and all those other organ systems, good for them. In CNS, everything migrates. <laughs> Month later, she told me one of her great. <laughs> right? So like, you, like if, the, if the faculty use the content, hmm. then they can build on it. And the, like the, the, the thing we're, we're going with is you don't need the guy who's got a surgery named after him teaching anatomy of the heart. Right. Like, like use your resources better. Right. So if you have a curriculum that's going to end and it's going to satisfy a need. Okay. That, 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 I'm going to take a detour real quick. Right. You know, the proverb, teach a man to fish, fish him for life. You don't give him a fish, feed him for a day. Right. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that it does not take into account the mental state of the person when you're making that decision. Because if you were to say drowning in the water in which the fish are, you would not give a shit about whether you're going to feed him a fish or teach him how to fish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, right. There's no drowning in medical school, right? There's no water, but there is a minimum requirement. In that case, not drowning, not men. And that's great, right? Success on licensing exams, success on shelves is all you're going to care about because it is literally the thing that makes or break you. The school's curriculum doesn't prepare you for that. The other thing you've been doing does. Imagine if you showed up to class and you had that requirement, success on exams, already met. And I've seen it already, right? So um, a, a girl came up to us uh, from, I'm not going to name school. Um, at AMC, we, we had a booth, and one of the girls came up and said, I was, I'm at this medical school. It's my first year. I'm doing Hemonk. Right? And they have online med at available. It's not required. She just did it. That was well going. That's all she did. Average is a 56. She got a 94. And I was like, 
Hey, if you just know the stuff, you're going to do well. <laughs> Success on exams is an afterthought if you have an accelerated path to mastery. And you can't do that if you've got a shadow curriculum full of competing frameworks. You can if you've got a series of deliberate, identical frameworks that build on one another. Like this thing did not exist, right? Like I'm talking about it like it, it's, I, mean, I think it's the best thing since Betty White, but right, like it is because, <laughs> because it doesn't, like it doesn't hinge on the things of the past, right? We made the things that I needed to get me from where I started to where I got to, right? I had to figure it out, but then we just made the thing that makes the connection for you. And if you haven't seen them, like we have amazing illustrations and radiology layout and layovers, histology, right? Like the, the curriculum is designed to demonstrate health and disease. So you visualize it. So it's more than just words on a page, right? It's not just like fried eggs cells, but you're like, you see a sheet of nuclei with lots of cytoplasm around them. I know why it's called the fried egg, right? Like we show you the histology and the radiology and all this stuff. Yeah. Okay, you also, perfect. you hit so many of these things that we're kind of interested in. Um, I, I'm wondering about what, like, what is it going to take to convince schools to adopt this path? I don't know. And that's what the Institute of Success team is for. Um, I call them nine deans, um, but they, not they all deans. There are people who um, each have a specialty in medical education. Wherever they were, they, ro they rose to the top of their, their pillar. And they didn't hit a ceiling, but they kind of hit a glass ceiling because what they care about is that thing. And they can't do it any better at the institution they were at. So we plucked them to bring them here to make a team that demonstrates to other deans how our curriculum works, right? We've taken insiders, right, who want to have a broader impact brought in to show schools how it works, right? Because someone, like, like, if you just say, here's online med and figure it out, no one's gonna be able to do it, right? So we have the, the, these academic leaders who know how to talk to and know the problems of the people we're trying to sell to, the institutions. And we have the experience of doing it many times where people have integrated so that we can be like, well, this is how other school did it. Let us help you. You know, it's not going to be the same, right? Every, no med school is identical, but it could be we take the lessons that we learned from one school and lessons we learned from another school, lessons we learned from another school. Now, hey, we have a package for you. So we, we've made the best that the way to do it is to demonstrate excellence in content my stuff's like insane. It's never been seen before. And we're making everything brand new. We don't copy anything and everything's in-house. Excellence, quality, and directions, right? With the team to help them follow those directions. Not everyone's going to do it, right? I mean, everyone's, there's going to be people who take a long time to adopt. It's fine. But it's now easy to do so. No one knows how to do it right. No one knows what, like, who did COVID correctly. Well, we have an answer <laughs> and how to do it. Yeah. But other than that, I don't know. Maybe getting um, students excited about it and having them, you know, yell at their faculty, right? <laughs> That's a decent way. Yeah, hey, we can help with that. There you go. <laughs> I'd love to, to transition a little bit and just kind of ask for your advice on a couple of things. I think we had a couple of questions in terms of, like, how you might be able to lend advice to students either currently studying or like pre-med students who are thinking about going into this this field in general. So just to start, what would be your 
pitch to people coming towards the medical field? Like what are some pros and cons that you've seen that we haven't well, necessarily talked about? I did leave. <laughs> <laughs> I so, guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, you're I, still, I, you're still here. Yeah, I, I still practice medicine, kind of, right? But like, um, so I, it, you have to be committed to it is what it is, right? Like no one knows how hard it's going to be, right? Like medical school is the hardest thing that you've ever done until you get into residency and residency is the hardest thing ever done, right? So like, it doesn't get easier. And so it has to be, you have to have a calling, right? Like it can't be because you want status or because you want money, right? You have to have um, a drive or a desire to help others, right? Um, what ends up happening is uh, we, we, let's say we, we go into massive debt, get up your twenties, um, all for the opportunity to take care of other people. And along the way, like, you, you get disrespected and people don't really look up to you. You have all this massive responsibility. It takes six months to get credentials because all the paperwork you have to do, right? Because all the responsibility comes with it. But like, you're not really treated as like an upper echelon of society. You're looked up to on the hospital floor, right? You had a long white coat. Cool. Right? But it's like, you have to go into this knowing that you're going to give more than you get. You're going to sacrifice and it's going to be for other people. That's not for everybody. So if you're thinking about doing it because your parents did it, don't do it. If you're thinking about it because you want to make a lot of money, do something else, right? Because if you get into medical school, you probably get into any other school, <laughs> right? So it's like make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. Make sure that being a doctor does match with whatever aligns with who and what you are. Yeah, I think getting your perspective, especially on that, is kind of important because like you had talked about earlier, you know, you when you were one years old, we're told like, this is what you're going to do. And you kind of went down that route. And I'm sure there are so many other people going down this route in a very similar boat. Um, and I think it's important for people to realize, like, just because you're being told to do it, it, it might not line up with you. And you might not realize that until you get four years into school or you're almost done with medical school already. And there are always outlets to do other things. Like you took a full different path and ended up where it seems like you wanted to be anyway, even though it isn't necessarily the original location right. you thought it would have been. Right. Yeah. Yes. But like, and, and actually, I think you said, right. When you, if you ever find out, if you realize this isn't for you, you can leave, right? Don't keep going further and further downstream because you're thinking you're stuck in it. I left to do this, right? Like, I would have continued practicing if I didn't have like a gargantuan four and a half year thing that would, that I spent all day, every day doing for two and a half years, right? Like the basic sciences. If I didn't have that, I would have continued practicing, right? I had an opportunity over here to make something and that's why I got out. I was unhappy. Right? <laughs> I was angry all the time, right? But it was still it, most of the time fulfilling work. And then the other advice question that I had um, was just, for students who might want to do something in terms of entrepreneurship or in terms of academic teaching during medical school, do you have any advice on like how they could get started with that or like who they could talk to, how they can learn about it? Um, no, <laughs> I just started making videos and it sort of fell in my lap, right? Like I still don't know how to do finances, right? I get to be the, the, the sorcerer in the, in the backyard, you know, making magic in here in the studio. Right. So I don't know anything about entrepreneurship. I do know a little bit now because we raise money. And so like we have CV funding, VC funding, but like um, learning business, no idea. I'd probably go to MBA school, take a year to do that. Right. And then um, 
for opportunities teaching, those are two very different things, by the way, right? Like going into entrepreneurship, I would suggest that people don't do both, right? Like, again, you're asking me, right? I, I chose the entrepreneurship, right? So like practicing medicine requires repetition, right? The more you do something, the better you are at it. The less you do it, the rusty you get, the worse you are at it, right? Like I did an H&P the first time in like two years. I was like, oh my God, this is so slow. So, I forget how to do this. Right. So like, seriously, like, like, so if you go into medicine and then want to do something else, you, you lose this skill if you don't maintain it. So I would recommend not trying to be the leader of an entrepreneurship. You can get involved with one. You can be an advisor to, but make sure someone else is running that thing. Cause if you're going to run that thing, you got to leave. Hmm. Teaching though, this is very hard. I got lucky, right? Um, both of my mentors were sort of on their rise, right? So like they weren't big and, and important enough to like, just ignore me. <laughs> they became that, right? Like a medical student four years later, tried to go to Weiss. He, like he was, you know, running the, running the residency and obviously running um, all residencies, right? They didn't have time to have a, like a one-on-one -on -one mentorship, right? So like I happened to catch people like a really good time in their careers so that they could give me the, teach me how to do it and then give me the opportunities to teach, right? I had to like, not yell loudly, but I made it very clear that I was interested in medicine and teaching very early on, right? So it was like, I kind of fell into that. I don't know how to find that. But there are people. There's not, there must be people who teach that you identify as someone who's, who's a good teacher. You should probably go ask them at your institution. Right? If, if it's not them, then they'll point you to whoever's next up. Yeah. Thank you. That's, um, that's really good advice. I think both those things that Riley just touched on are important components of what we want to uh, like send out as part of this podcast. So I think. We've hit like now. Hang on, that for, for the listeners. I don't necessarily. I'm not necessarily right. That was my advice. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think I'm right. <laughs> yes, there might be other opinions. Of course, of course, of course, of course. Um, no, but thank you, thank you. I, yeah, we definitely really appreciate that. Um, I didn't have any other serious questions that I wanted to ask. Um, Riley, did you? Um. No, you kind of touched on this. I guess the only thing I would love to hear about is what's next for online med ed. I, I saw there's a couple of projects. And, oh, one of the things I kind of want to touch on, too, is how I love um, the, the side of the business that's becoming kind of outreach. You know, you're focusing on things that aren't necessarily just medicine. There's a whole dedicated thing where you're um, – including the community and you're teaching lessons about things that are important to the healthcare community. That's not necessarily the science. Um, and there's, you know, you have the scholarship foundation. Now there's just so many different ways that you're actually doing things to benefit the, the community. That's not just teaching. Um, so I just wanted to kind of highlight that for any of the listeners who don't necessarily know about that. I think that's a phenomenal way for you to be able to use that platform. Yeah, so, um, I'm going to respond to that. I heard DEI yeah. and what's next. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We hired uh, Dr. Danielle Guillory. She, a doctor, doctor, MD, PhD. Um, she was hired um, for, to become the director of DEI. She was one of the nine deans. Um, she was hired to ensure that the corporate culture included diversity, equity, and inclusion, that the content has it correct. Good news. I've been doing it all along. And, and to then generate outreach and connections, right? The, Black Physician Scholarship isn't about celebrating one person of color's success. 
that person gets the money. So good job, Cedric. Right. But like, it's also to identify hundreds of people of color who are exceptional people. They may not have won the award, but now they've, they've been identified and Danielle can then go out across medical schools and connect people. Right. So like the, we are not going to solve it. Right. As Danielle says, it's a systemic problem. I'm a white dude. Right. Like I'm like part of the problem, air quotes. Right. So, but like, we are going to get the ball rolling. Right? Identify these things, get the conversation started and have Danielle go connect things. But, um, I've been doing um, DEI-related things, just haven't said it from the very beginning. And I got flamed on social media one time because, um, I, but being a racist, right? Because the question, uh, vignette in, in question, used the word gangbanger. The literal definition of that word is a person who's in a gang who uses guns. And so I went to the question. I was like, I, I don't state race, like, that, unless it really matters. And, like, and sure enough, race was not stated. Little be known to me was that some politician misappropriated the word gangbanger and used it to refer to black teenagers. I didn't know that, right? And what's just ironic is that the vignette that that the guy that that vignette was based on, the guy his gang members dropped off full of holes in front of the ER charity, the guy who died on the operating table when I helped, was trying to hold in his brains, was white. Mm. And so Danielle said well, I was going to pull the question, right? Because I don't, I don't I'm like fuck it. I mean, uh, oops. <laughs> Right, but like it's like you know, one question I'll just take it down. Like I, I don't want to be, I don't want to get flamed in social media. And she said, no, 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 no. You leave that question in, and then make the answer explanation about that. And we do on some other things like um, all humans are depicted as having gray skin, because except for very few diseases, health and disease doesn't care about your skin color. It does care about your genetic heritage, right? But it doesn't nothing to do with the color of your skin. So all of the people. Are we underrepresent Caucasians? We overrepresent minorities, and we, we this is best practices in medical illustration. We use very distinctive facial features, and right? so you know what race it's from. But the skin is gray, so you can't tell. Mm. And then we do things like, um, you know, like the gay couple goes to Thailand, who has diarrhea, gets traveler's diarrhea, not AIDS-related diarrhea because they're gay. They get traveler's diarrhea because they're traveling, <laughs> right? Like that stuff is ubiquitous, right? We don't call it out; it's just there. And so we normalize diversity. And then what's next? Yeah. Um, so the, the only other, the, the other part of the question was um, what's next for MedEd? So I, um, I'm done the core, right? The pace. That's taxing to keep up to date. So I am going to probably be only set to refreshing that content over and over again. But I do have a strong desire, and we already have people selected, um, to improve the art of clinical reasoning right like there has to be courses like humanism in medicine right where people learn to interpret art or write stories mm. and h p when done right it's supposed to be literally a story mm. right so um in the art of clinical reasoning you've got the first first paragraph right time the timing characterization of the, the complaint far, we teach far colder at um, the two-lane frequency associated uh, related to uh, colder shoot Anyway, particle is the mnemonic that we use to teach how you get the, the timing and characterization of whatever the complaint is. You then pass that through your filter, the patterns of prevalence of disease, and take a long differential based on the, the chief complaint, a short one based on the answers, the timing, and characterization. You then use the differential to ask questions that, if positive or negative, will alter the pretest probability of this one of these diagnoses being right. And then you pull from the past medical, surgical, social, allergies, meds, stuff, anything that influences that decision-making. Then you do a physical exam. You could have a tier one exam that you do every patient every time. And then you have tier two exams. 
physical exam maneuvers you do to increase or decrease the pretest probability of one of these, you choose which maneuvers to do based on your list. Then you order some tests. Well, we've started the creation of physical diagnosis, which is a one piece in a large web of the art of clinical reasoning. What it's going to do is teach people how to do the physical exam the right way, <laughs> right? What, what it looks like to be positive and negative. So we are actively filming that now with Dr. Jeremy Pullman, who is our osteopath curricular lead. Um, he's gonna, he's done some um, OMT videos with us. And so he's gonna be the main actor for physical diagnosis. And that also fits in with the radiology reading room. Um, I learned to read films because I lost people to that were helping me during COVID. So I just like taught myself radiology. I can't do a job radiologist, but like, if you tell me the diagnosis is, I can, I can get in there now. So what I've done is I've started recording myself doing a live case. Right. So I scroll through the case. I point things out that I want you to point out. And I show you health and disease through mainly CTs and MRIs, but sometimes multiple times. And what that does is it creates a familiarity with radiology. When you, the non-radiologist, think it's appendicitis because you asked the questions, you did the physical exam maneuver, you ordered the CT scan. You may not be able to read that scan, but you know put an axial, scroll the mouse wheel down, and it's a big gray thing over here on the left, you're right, <laughs> right? So if you can use radiology as a physical exam tool, if we can develop point of care ultrasound as a stethoscope, right? You can do the path to clinical reasoning. You can't do everyone's job all the way around. You can't do the radiologist's work, but what you can do is answer the question, do I have a diagnosis? Because once you have a diagnosis, you can treat it. You can actually look it up. You don't have to remember the treatments, but if you don't know what to look up, <laughs> right. So the most important thing is getting the art, the path to clinical reasoning. What ends up being is that first and second paragraph stuff, knowing the illness scripts, that's the core content. Doing the physical exam, that's physical diagnosis. Using radiology as a stethoscope, that's radiology reading. So what we're hopefully making is better doctors because you learn more, you retain more, you see how it fits together, and not just people who know more and test better, but practice better. That's the, I mean, and then there's beyond that too, right? There's other stuff I want to do, but if we're to do it, we need help, right? Like it, so there's like other stuff like um, that isn't the medical knowledge, that isn't the practice of medicine that should be taught. Now there'll be time and effort to actually spend time on those things, but we need help. So if you know anybody who wants to contribute, it's in Norway. Because, <laughs> but this is sincere, this is sincere though, right? Because I do believe there's a lot of people who are really good at teaching, but can't do the thing that we can do because they don't have a production team, right? People get stuck in their school and they do something that's like cheap because they don't have any money for it. And it could be amazing and it should be brought to the world, but they can't get it off the ground. We have a production team. Right? And if someone like comes to us with a good idea, we, we can prioritize it, right? And so like we can do things with our content and the content team that medical school faculty can't because they don't have those people. Yeah, I uh, I can think off the top of my head. Yeah, for sure. There's a few people. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. This has me really excited. This has me rethinking, uh, rethinking a little bit about um, my own ways of preparation and going forwards, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. I... You know, I was exposed to online med ed from the Yale PA people who love you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, seriously. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, I think about my friend and his knowledge um, and his ability to integrate what he's learning, like right now, right on the spot, something that he's learned with all this stuff that he's already he's already got in his brain from you um, is like really special. I was, I was so uh, like impressed. That's an opportunity. So one of the questions I think you wanted to ask was, why do I like teaching? And I was actually going to ask you, I was going to say it differently, because that question presumes I do it because I like it. And what you just said right there leads right into this. Four phases of teaching. The first phase is you study something. It was difficult. You mastered it finally. To prove it to someone else, you teach them. You're not good at it, but you know what? You're right. You proved it. Phase two is you do that long enough because most people don't teach. Someone says thank you. <laughs> right? You feel good. When someone's giving you a reward, the external environment has said, good job teaching. What it really means is thanks for paying attention. And phase three is you'd get popular, you do it long enough, you win awards. Right? That feels really good. The problem with all those first three phases is that it's all about the teacher, not the learner. Now, I hit phase four pretty early in my career. I stopped accepting awards at 32 right? because I keep winning them. It's not fair. Right? And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't need them. Phase four is all about effectiveness. And effectiveness means someday you're going to be in the patient room at a bedside and you're going to make the right choice. You're going to do the right thing. You're not going to remember I taught you. You want to remember that you were taught. It doesn't have to be me teaching you. If I can make your medical school experience so much better that you have the opportunity to have learned whatever you just learned, whatever you just did, there won't be any awards. There won't be any applause. No one will know about it. You will have done good for someone else. Dovetailing from what you just said, all the knowledge he's already got, he's already able to apply it. He's going farther and faster. Not with me, but because of me, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. And that's why I teach. I don't like teaching. In fact, I'm usually by myself. I talk to a camera. <laughs> but that's why I teach. It really, it really is that idea of um, getting so much broad expansion and being able to to affect so many different people because, you know, streamlining information like that and making the learning process easier only helps future, like, learners and physicians help other people more efficiently. And so it's kind of this, just a snowball effect that, uh, that really can show some positives coming from a more efficient and direct method of learning like this. It is very difficult for me to talk to someone like you and say, you should use online med ed. Why? Because I'm going to say my name right. <laughs> you should use online med ed. Why? Because you won't kill yourself 10 years later or quit practice five years in. That doesn't resonate, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's you're like, what? Right. But like but that, that's the thing. Like we can affect the, the damage inflicted at the beginning and we can make med school not suck. Right? Make learning health and disease easier. All the th negative consequences downstream won't happen because you'll leave. This is actually what I'd like to have happen. You'll leave medical school already having a bunch of ownership. Right? What's happened with CMS and CPOE is that you're, you've learned your notes don't matter and you can't write orders. Right? Back in my day, we had paper. <laughs> so I had to write the orders as a student and the resident would co-sign them. Right? So I had to pay attention all the time. Medical school now is you just, you're observer, you get brushed aside. And instead, if you are able to show up, get all the medical knowledge stuff done, pass your step one, step two, and now have all this time for something else, 
you could engage in individual experiences that make your medical school unique, that make your path unique, that like really focus on the thing that you want to focus on, and you get to responsibility sooner. Fourth year becomes intern year. You do it in the confines of your medical school's hospital. And so that you go through intern year in the familiar place. And you leave and go to residency really, really good already to then take over. So like early responsibility, more. Oh, and by the way, the whole, all, all of what I just said is get out of the books, metaphorically, sooner and do the thing that you went to school to do. See patients sooner, only with the ability and the knowledge of what, what the encounter is going to do. Like if you just bump into a patient, that's no different than bumping someone in the street. But if you are coming in prepared for that experience, patient experiences actually matter. Start practicing sooner and with good practice, you get really good before you leave medical school. So that's the idea. Out of the books to the bedside. Awesome. Oh, or the OR, you know, whichever your yeah. preference. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, we've covered like so much and I'm excited to digest all this after too and go back through it. Um, I really, Riley and I both want to wrap up on the cat. Oh, what a great way to end. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, we had to ask about that. Uh -huh. <laughs> What's in the cat is. shirt? Yeah. Okay. So um, what we tell people is that learning medicine is very serious, right? It's life and death, literally, right? So, so we sprinkle in a little bit of fun to of, of brevity of lightness with the cat. Okay. That's the bullshit. <laughs> the story is um, Justin Kahn was my roommate for four years at Yale. Uh, right after Yale, he was um, he started his first startup, which was called Kiko, a calendar app. Back then, Gmail and calendar apps didn't exist. <laughs> it was called Kiko, which means hello in Hawaiian. I suggested that he should have a cat come over the top of the logo and go, Kiko. Well, that, that company failed. Like They sold it on eBay or something like that. But his next company, Justin.tv, which would later become Twitch, he used... <laughs> no way. <laughs> uh, he used a gorilla and, and said, you know, I said, See, you know what, when I do my startup, I'm going to use a cat. Well, he obviously is doing better financially than I am. <laughs> but the cat actually comes from my cat, Kimber. She is a gray cat. She, I, um, I got her instead of a target 22 target pistol because my girlfriend at the time wanted a cat. And I'm hypoallergenic, so I had to pay a lot of money for a show cat, but she's broken. Because she's a show cat, but she's got a, pep, a red spot here and not over here. So she was like, I got her for like one, one fourth the usual fee. Well, mm -hmm. she became my cat. <laughs> right. So Kimber is Dr. Cat, which I, I, I like a lot. Because even at the company here, people will call it a he. And I get to say, it's Dr. Cat's a she. Women can be doctors too. And whenever I say that, people are like, right. oh, oh, I know. I'm supposed to be them. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the cat is my cat, and it That's was retaliation awesome. against Justin Kahn's gorilla. <laughs> Take that. There yeah. you go. I'm okay with the plug, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kimber's uh, made some appearances in the videos, too? Oh, I'm not. Um, I, I did the thing where she, in, like, Flash 1, right? Like, I made the thing where her paws would come up, and she'd poke her head over. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> My saying is more cat, right? And I don't get it, but um, we, 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 I want to start bringing in the cat more often in different places 
we finally hired an animator so like she could like walk across the screen you know but we, like that's not obviously not very high priority so i'm still waiting for the time <laughs> time when we are able to do it more cat <laughs> more cat that's that would be kind of cool like in the in the home page you could just have the cat walking across the bottom while you're like looking through the video yeah. there you the go scroll <laughs> oh there you go yeah the scroll is a little paw instead <laughs> We had attempts at that. Actually, people have like the like little paw comes up and like touches like the the email symbol or something. We've yeah. had iterations of that, but they don't last. Ah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't always get my way. It's okay. <laughs> That's so um, cool. Yeah. So, uh, do you have any any last minute things you'd like to say to the channel or to anybody? Because I think we've kind of gone through everything that we wanted to ask. It's been awesome. Yes, I do have concluding remarks. These are often my concluding remarks. Now, there's going to be a time where you question yourself, whether you did the right thing. When, in, on this podcast, we talked about, you know, if you really found out you didn't, you should leave. And that's fine. But there is no other higher calling than for those of us who do medicine. So if you ever doubt, remember why it is why we do what we do. Because you're going to see people at their weakest and most vulnerable. And what we've committed ourselves to doing is to mending the wounded, curing the sick, and comfort the dying. And there's no greater calling than that. Hey, that's a beautiful way to put it. Perfect. Cheering right. up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'll, I'll do them in gloom. Don't worry. Helps, helps on the way. <laughs> it's not too late for you. It's all right. <laughs> that's a good point, though. Actually, like in medical school and residency was really hard. But like life as an yeah. attendant was pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's fair. That's at least there's something to look forward to. I think someone on a, one of our previous podcasts gave us the quote um, during residency. They tell you there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and what they don't tell you is that that light is a train coming right at you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it's nice to have a little bit more of a positive spin on things, you know? Yes. Yeah. It's not all bad. <laughs> Cool. Um, okay guys all right yeah well we really really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk with us i think this is super beneficial not only to us but also to so many people that are going to be able to listen to this all right great talking to you guys all right Thanks, I, so I really you guys. It. all right if you guys are still listening thank you so so much for supporting the podcast this is unfortunately the end of the episode, but as always, Jack and I have left our emails in the description of this episode. Please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions for us as medical students, if you have any questions that you would like us to ask on an episode, if there are any specific specialties that we have not done that you would like us to do, or if you know anyone who would like to come on the podcast and give advice to prospective students or to residents or to fellows, please, please, please reach out. We love you guys. Thank you for supporting and we will see you next episode.